Hello and welcome to To The Point with Portland, a podcast for communications professionals that gets to the heart of the biggest questions in communications, policy and reputation. I'm Mike Peacock, Senior Advisor at Portland, formerly Head of Comms at the Bank of England and prior to that a journalist for longer than I'd care to admit. Today I'm joined by Andrew White, who has a long and distinguished track record in comms, most recently Director of Communications at the Financial Conduct Authority. He held the same post at both the Foreign Office and DEFRA and was Head of Corporate and Public Relations at the BBC. In this episode, we'll be discussing the challenges of our work in high-profile public organisations and the differences and similarities of shaping corporate communications. We'll also look at recent developments in comms and try to do a bit of future gazing. This is To The Point. Andrew, welcome and thank you for agreeing to be on this podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So, as I said in the intro, we both work for institutions that were in the media, public and political glare pretty much daily. What challenges did that throw up for you and and how did you manage to keep some focus on what we'd call sort of strategic comms goals? Yeah, it was tough. I mean, every morning we would have press cuts that were the size of a small doorstop um, and that's without the social media noise and barrage that came in all the time. So there are a number of ways we had to do it. I mean, the one thing you have to be is constantly vigilant. Both of us know we had a big waterfront we worked on, but our organisations were big and complex and lots happened inside the organisation. So one of the things I say, you know, always say to people is maintain a focus on your internal audience, your people, and maintain an audience on what they're doing and what's going on across the organisation. And that's a really important way of having, if you like, early warning systems of things that might start coming down the track and catch you later on. We had really clear comms strategy every year, signed off by the executive committee, signed off by the board. I know you did the same. It was kind of worked out with the organisation. And we had a team set up to ensure we delivered on that. We had proper evaluation built in right from the beginning. So all those priorities we identified had a strategic comms unit that were responsible for driving them forward. We had big campaigns, our dedicated teams on them. We followed through those and we made sure we achieved those objectives. But what was interesting was that the day-to-day whatever we did in terms of those big core messages that we focused on key messages throughout there would be something that come left field that would take your attention away and we actually absolutely had to focus on being quick uh, responding positively and constructively even if it was critical but getting our response out quick to that that's very interesting and I guess I had a very similar experience and clearly the organizations we worked you have a sort of transparency and accountability obligation to respond to whatever's coming your way from the media or or social media so sticking a head in the sand is really not an option uh one follow-up question how do you triage what's a genuinely reputationally threatening issue stroke crisis from something that may have a shelf life of a few hours and 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 how do you convince your your bosses whether it's a or b Yeah, that was always one of the tricky things. And that issue of external noise was something that could impact internally. It could take your attention away from some of those strategic issues for a day. In the end, it comes down to judgment. We had to use, and I know you did as well, kind of judgment that said, actually, is this something which is absolutely core does it go back to our purpose as an organization is it something that is going to be fundamental to us achieving our objective we used to talk not about our reputation at the fca but about public confidence it really mattered to us as a regulator uh, that people had confidence 
in us as a relegator to deliver against our objectives. That was what mattered most, not what people thought of us in terms of, you know, the normal things of reputation that, that you would use if you were a fast-moving consumer group company, for example. It was about people's confidence in us to do our job. So everything came back to that. Is this an issue which goes to the heart of people's assumption of our capacity and their confidence in us to deliver our job? Yeah, indeed, indeed. And as you say, I mean, it is, it is a judgment call and, and therefore, by definition, no one has infallibility of judgment. So, so things can go right and things can go wrong, I guess. And actually, it can also be the case that something that feels trivial, if you're in a general period of sort of malaise or coming under fire, criticism, something that feels trivial can just add to that and even sort of amplify it and sort of become an emblem of it, where at another time, it really wouldn't amount to a, a hill of beans. That's absolutely right. And I think that's that's kind of why I said at the beginning, we need to be maintain our focus on everything's going across the organisation. Small things, which on one day would pass unnoticed, can become, uh, as you say, emblematic of something and get disproportionately important. Um, and that's why that kind of constant monitoring of the internal and external environment put against your understanding and your insight onto the context and awareness of other things and being aware of how things might connect was really crucial to knowing uh, what's the right thing to respond on in the right way. I mean, it's exactly what you say. It's about, it's about professional judgment, but always informed by really clear insight and understanding of the issues and of your audiences internal yeah. and external. Yeah. And as you say, through all that noise and, and the daily sort of buffeting that came certainly to be at the bank and you at the SCA and, and other places, I'm sure the BBC was uh, similar, you have to try and keep some locus on, on your strategic goals. And I think this is a sort of message for those in corporate communications as well, that if you're, if you're only firefighting, when the really big crisis comes along, if you haven't developed that sort of public understanding or awareness um, of what you're about, what you do, what quotes your purposes nowadays, you're in much worse shape to then deal with that crisis than if you have done that spade work and do have some sort of recognition of understanding of what you're about. There is something about making sure that you are constantly telling the positive story. I don't just mean positive as in good news, but the positive story about what your organisation is about and what you're setting out to achieve and having a regular drumbeat of those communications messages getting out there to all your audiences. The media are important, obviously, but there are lots of other stakeholders who may not feel important today, but when one of those issues spikes up in a few months' time or a few days' time, could suddenly become the most influential voice in the discussion about you. So you need to make sure you're managing all your different audiences as well as you can, communicating with them clearly, honestly and transparently, and, and keeping that regular uh, as a regular drumbeat of communications about the organisation, about what it's doing, going and maintaining good two-way communications with all your audiences. Yeah, and I think maybe one of the themes of this conversation will be that these are things we've had to deal with and, and do over the last few years maybe a little ahead of the corporate world, but it's absolutely catching up with, with yeah. all companies now that you have to take the same approach and you need a narrative about um, about what your company does and what its purpose is. You can't just say, I'm the world's best widget maker, I make a lot of money, I just care about my investors and that's that's really all there is to it. 
I think, as you say, those of us worked in areas where public accountability is fundamental to what we do have been dealing with that for some time. We used to have, you'd have the governor, we'd have the chief executive, and in my days at the BBC, the director general, in my days at the Arts Council, the chief executive, regularly having to give public testimony, whether it's to public meetings or whether it's to the select committees, um, whatever it was, they were regularly on call to explain what they were doing and be held count for that. I think what's really interesting now is you're seeing that starting to happen for chief executives in the in the private sector. Commercial companies can no longer just say, exactly as you say, this is about making the base widgets, our only obligation is to our shareholders. And I think it's at least arguable that, that one of the reasons that's happened is people's changing expectations, society's changing expectations of the role that big companies, that commercial interests play in their lives, whether it's from, you know, the megas like Facebook uh, through to, you know, everyday people like Tesco, people see them playing a bigger part in their lives and therefore their expectations of those companies and uh, their expectations of their public accountability have changed. And people are expecting, I think, CEOs in particular and companies, spokespeople generally, to be able to comment on things about their lives that go beyond the direct provision of of a widget yeah indeed and of course if you don't get that right um and public opinion turns against you then your investor base is going to be concerned about that pretty quickly if if that remains yeah. your primary audience which of course for most companies it does you, you still have to do your job well you still have to run your company well but it's interesting that you can't you can't divorce investors as an audience from anybody else anymore i don't think I think that's right. And I think that interrelationship between different audiences and expectations has changed the definition of what running your company well is about. And that's where we as communications professionals come in as well, because we always had that kind of insight into what all our audiences think about us. When I was at the BBC, my uh, director of marketing communications at the time, Andy Duncan, who went on to run Channel 4, used to say that we in the communications function, we were the voice of the BBC to the world, but also the voice of the world to the BBC. And that interface, I think, is a really important role that we play and is becoming more important as we move forward into the future. That's an absolutely crucial point. Thank you. So we were going to talk about some recent developments and I think that neatly segues into one which is which comes under the banner acronym ESG. I'm not quite sure when the acronym first came into being but it's certainly pretty universal now and again following this theme I think the institutions we work for had to be thinking about some of these issues earlier not necessarily holistically but but as publicly accountable publicly sort of recognized figures and bodies you could be asked about anything at any time um, and you had to have a sort of coherent view uh, and of course as comms professionals it was our job to spot some of those issues and prepare for them before you were sort of buttonholed about them in public. That that kind of um, horizon scanning and understanding what the various different stakeholders that we were operating with, what their expectations of us were, what were the issues were on their agenda was kind of really really important and being able to um, as much as you could get ahead of the game uh, and have your kind of your, your briefings prepared is really important. I remember when we used to prepare the chief executive for the select committee hearings, we used to provide you know literally a hundred pages of briefing notes before they go in because they could be asked a question on any number of those issues. In fact, only ever a dozen would come up during a two-hour session, but there could be any range of them and they had to be fully briefed and they were expected to have views on all those issues, a range of issues within our remit 
and some that actually went beyond our remit. Yeah, indeed. We, we did the precisely the same. It always amazed me the ability of some of my bosses to absorb all that information, and and there would be contemporary and, and topical stuff, but they would also be the perennials like always know the price for a pint of milk and a, and a loaf of bread if you don't want to look completely Absolutely. out of touch. And uh, yeah, so I talk about ESG. It strikes me that the S part could be the hardest for. Not all companies, but some companies. Environmental issues and action to help counter those will be law for a start. Um, later, everybody's going to be obliged to play their part. Governance is a, is a crucial issue, but it, it feels a little more sort of niche for the general public. But the S, the sort of purpose, what is your social purpose, is a really difficult question, but probably the most important one. And again, actually, for institutions like the bank and, and, and those you worked for, might be a little less difficult. You know, the bank was there to keep the economy on an even keel, keep people in work. The FCA was there to make sure that the consumer wasn't uh, ripped off or abused in in any way. The BBC, inform, educate, entertain, um, etc. It's interesting. How do you think that is probably the trickiest area for companies? And how do you address that sort of that key issue that would, would give you a narrative around what your company does and is about? I think it is a really tricky issue and I think as you say the 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 connection is perhaps less obvious for some companies if you're in a, an extractive industry then the connection to the E of ESG is obvious but the social is kind of harder but I think that kind of, that that's really interesting the, the point I was making a few moments ago about people's expectations of companies are changing now. I think we saw that uh, really in sharp relief a couple of years ago with the Black Lives Matter when when that terrible incident drove such a public outpouring of concern and anger uh, and people are expecting companies to take a view. Um, Staff are expecting it. They were saying, look, you as the chief executive, you as the board need to think about me and my interest and represent me. Um, So there was was a staff issue there. Uh, But there was also an issue externally, which is that people are saying, well, hang on a minute, you know, this is now a major social issue. Companies play a major social part in in our lives. We expect them to take a position on this, to make a contribution to addressing this issue. And I think that uh, that's, I mean, uh, there have been many examples, but that's one in the last couple of years which has thrown it into really sharp relief, I think. This expectation that CEOs and the companies need to be able to demonstrate a social concern that goes wider than just making great widgets, making profits, whatever it may be, but actually and show that they are part of the wider community uh, and do that in a way which is articulate, which is clear, which is rooted in their core values so it's not bolt on it's no false it just seems need to be authentic and i think that's been a real challenge a number of companies have done incredibly well responding to it a number of companies have have felt a bit behind Um, but it's certainly something which i think you'll see shareholders and activist shareholders expecting companies to be catching up with that now yeah i think that that points another trend that i've certainly seen and 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 learned from and part of it's due to COVID, I think, which we can come on to as a, a recent catalyst for um, uh, for change in communications. But it goes beyond that, and that's the absolutely crucial audience, which is your internal staff audience on these issues and, and, and many others besides. I think there's, uh, there's lots of research, isn't it, that shows that uh, younger people in particular have higher expectations of their, em- of their employer. Um, and in the uh, when we hear all the stuff about the, the the war for talent, 
um, particularly when you look in the UK at the moment with unemployment is its lowest for, yeah, well, for, for two generations really, um, that young people looking for work are going to have more choice than they've had in the past and they're going to be asking questions and they're going to be saying to organisations, is this the sort of place that I want to work? Do they have values that I identify with? Um, and I think that challenge for companies, not just to say the right thing and have the right statements put out, but actually to be um, authentic in what they do and representing and meeting the aspirations of, of their people, I think is going to be really interesting. The, the idea, you know, the, the notion, which is long gone anyway, but, but, but the notion that you could just kind of send messages out to staff just to tell them what the latest news was, the latest results, the new CEO or whatever it might be. That's long gone. Staff expect, people expect rightly to be much more engaged in the companies and the organisations, this applies to not-for-profits as well, uh, that they work for much more than they have been in the past because they have that sense of engagement and ownership. That's what they're looking for. And I think that's going to be a really, a really key challenge in the future. And again, something that we as communications professionals have a key role to play. Um, and at that integration of internal and external communications across that, making sure that those external messages are absolutely rooted in what we say and what we do internally is going to be really important yeah. as well. And I'll just pick up one word you, you say, authenticity, I think that's absolutely crucial. You have to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. If, you, if you're seen as being insincere or inauthentic in any of these areas, that's actually far worse than not doing anything at all. Yeah. That would be the, uh, the worst thing. And, and one thing I think I'd, I'd add that I've learned is is that you have to demonstrate that you're listening as well as transmitting. So yeah. it's, it's much more a sort of two-way relationship with staff, customers, investors, you name it. I, mean, I guess the investor one has always been two-way but but you have to be able to show that you're listening to people's concerns and thoughts and responding to them uh, as part of that authenticity. I think that's right and that um, actual listening and being seen to listen those two things are really important not not the kind of the just sticking a few things on a notice board and things like actually properly being visible as leaders in an organization i think that's something again where you know in the time that i've worked in communication internal comms has, has become much more to the forefront and much more associated with leadership strategies and much more centrally involved in that and i think that that kind of internal strategic communications as part of the future of the organization is a really important important development and something that all of us as communication professionals need to be involved in directly. And very quickly, before we come on to a bit of um, prediction of future gazing, always the hardest bit, um, uh, COVID, what's changed for people in our world? What has been changed by COVID or or during that pandemic? Um, It's interesting. Again, I I think um, COVID showed more than anything else the significance of people communications uh, internal communication staff communication staff engagement call it what you will but that actually ensuring that your people understood um, how to work in the new environment was a real big challenge for management and making sure there was a proper kind of two-way flow of information uh, about the new way of working how remote working would work and now we're moving into a hybrid environment all those sorts of things I think were really significant the other issue which I think COVID brought uh, to the front 
um, was wellness and mental health issues. And really, other, obviously, it was a physical health driven crisis, but actually the link in with mental health and people's mental well-being and how organisations could care for people through this extraordinary time, I think was really brought to the forefront and again has been a major challenge. And I saw at the FCA the key role that our people communications, our engagement with people played in ensuring that we were showing them that we were really there to support and help people through difficult times. Yeah, and, and just at a much more prosaic level, I it brought home to me that the sort of the reach and power of remote online uh, events and, and collaborations. You never want to give up face to face interaction if you don't have to, which of course we did during lockdown. But but there's certainly a sort of a mix now. I think where you can get vastly more reach if you if you hold a webinar with your chief executive than than if he's addressing a room full of people. Not least because people can log on and if they're bored two minutes later they can log off. Whereas if they've travelled all the way into central London or, or, or wherever, it's a big time commitment and a, uh, and they're sort of they're sort of a captive audience. Um, uh, certainly the bank we found that our reach expands exponentially by by having to move everything online and it, it changed how you thought about those sorts of engagements we didn't you literally didn't think you could do it that way but pretty quickly the crisis forced uh, us to find new ways through technology to engage people push the technology to its limits and sometimes beyond as we all had experience of um, and I think that did change uh, um, your sense of the best way to reach people and engage with them um, you're right there is no substitute for face-to-face but but we've shown that in a, again a proper hybrid world this can complement and supplement face-to-face in the right world and actually and we've been talking about internal comms it also works for external comms as well um, you can I mean when, at the FCA we we used to have an annual public meeting which was done physically with people who used to come usually down in London come down into a room for a couple of hours discussion ask questions to the uh, to the executive committee into the board because of pandemic we did it we had to do it virtually had to do it online we had more people took part and more questions and more genuine engagement than we had had with people in the room now it's different and I know the people who who felt being in the room gave them a more direct sort of face-to-face you could see the see the curl of people's eyes as it were um, but actually it was a different way of achieving the same objective in some ways was more accountable because more people could to ask more questions than we'd had previously yeah yeah so to the future yeah. discuss over to you <laughs> well I, I, one of the things that i think i've heard a lot about recently has been about uh, artificial intelligence and the impact that has on the industry. Uh, and I've been really struck by some really interesting work that the CIPR has done, particularly uh, at Professor Anne Gregory, um, about a couple of sides of that. First of all, um, if you like, the kind of the day-to-day professional implications for us. There's an assumption, isn't there, that the AI is going to impact on those roles which are more kind of um, transactional and mechanical and less on those which are sort of involve judgment and insight, which, it, which is where we in comms would put ourselves. Um, but I think we've seen already some signs in other professions, law, accountancy, and some creeping signs in our own profession where actually AI issues can take over some of the core tasks you know paralegal work and things like that and we can see that in our own media monitoring and other stakeholder monitoring and those sorts of things so and we need to be aware of the changing nature it's going to have for our profession and some of the skills we have 
the other bucket of issues are ethical, and I think that there's some real challenges for us here in communications. We sit in a key role um, in terms of the, how organisations, uh, the organisations work for, exercise their their power, if you like, their communications, their their engagement with people, particularly ownership of data, which is obviously big data is one of the things that's at the heart of this. And just as with every other strategic shift we have said as professionals in recent years, communications people need to be around the table. I think that's true in the, about, about the arrival of, of AI into communications as well and in, into the work of organisations. Um, just because AI can enable you to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Come back to the thing we talked about earlier in terms of a purpose. It's the right thing to do for their purpose. And very often we as communications professionals in that interface between the company, the organisation, its stakeholders, its audience, its customers, the people it's accountable to. In that interface, we're in a key place to say, well, actually, what is the right use of this technology to achieve our purpose that doesn't go too far, that doesn't compromise who we are as an organisation? And I think sometimes we will have a really key handle on that in a way that other people in the organisation are, and with the greatest respect to our colleagues in IT and technology, um, they know much more than we could ever know about the capacity of the kit to do things. But we also understand how that will land with people, how people will feel about the things we're doing as an organisation. So I think once again for us as communications professionals this next shift if it is going to be the shift that everyone predicts is we need to be part of the discussion about the right decisions strategic communications decisions and the right corporate strategy decisions that the organization makes in how to use this technology yeah and i would just add this is more of a present and future thing i guess but uh, but still rooted in that that sort of data point that Increasingly now, you can't be a comms or a PR person and say, here's a brilliant idea, it's going to work, it's going to be great. You have to provide, after the fact, evidence of, of impact. And, and obviously, this is this is ongoing, but it's only going to become more important. And it's an art as, as much of a, as a science, but social media metrics, media analysis, but also focus group polling, that sort of, those sort of tools have been around for a long time are going to be increasingly indispensable. Show me the impact is going to be the big question, I think, for for, uh, for comms people going forward. And actually, to go back to where we started, Mike, I think that that's one of the ways that we as professionals show the value beyond the day-to-day. We actually say, look, we set out these strategic objectives and we measure... We show what we've achieved, we show the impact, we evaluate everything, uh, we build that evaluation in from the beginning so that we can come back and say whatever noise you think you've heard over here, whatever the kind of the latest um, kind of columnist or whatever that you might have commented on you, actually this is the data that shows what we have really achieved. And I think that's that's one of the ways, I think you're absolutely right, using data and evidence properly is one of the ways that we can really show the value we add over and above the the day-to-day furore. Indeed. I was going to mention virtual reality and augmented reality as well, given um, uh, the metaverse, but that just makes my uh, my middle-aged head hurt. Um, so um, to sum up, I guess, what are we saying? That no one in the private sector can avoid tackling these big issues now. We've we probably got there a little earlier because we were representing public institutions that had an obligation to to be accountable, but also could be asked about anything at any time. It works best when your comms people are, are there at the outset for whatever for whatever you're planning, and uh, and authenticity is is key. What would you say? I'd agree with all of that. 
And I think the uh, one of the things the last couple of years has shown us is that things can happen that were not predicted. I mean, the, the, the kind of the Donald Rumsfeld unknown unknowns uh, and the way that we as communications professionals can best uh, uh, serve the organisations that we work for and with, I think, is to uh, keep across all those things, keep across data, keep across AI, keep across what's going on in the outside world to make sure that when, when the unknown unknowns do happen, like COVID, we're in the right position to step forward uh, and actually make a real strategic contribution to an organisation's response. Yeah. Andrew, thank you so much. That was um, a really rich and valuable discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of To The Point with Portland. Should you like to know more about what we discussed today, do get in touch with us via our website, portland-communications.com. You can speak to me directly on Twitter, at Mike D. Peacock, and you can reach our guest Andrew over on LinkedIn.